Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Mainline, where we seek to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus for Philadelphia's historic mainline and surrounding communities. Every week, we look again to the story of the Bible, the lavish grace of God revealed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website, libertymainline.org. Just one quick announcement. Uh, there are a number of announcements on page 12 and 13 in your bulletin, but one I wanted to highlight in particular. On Tuesday evening, May 23rd at 7 p.m. at the home of John and Nanette Balbach, we'll be having uh, an evening of processing, learning, and healing, and thinking about how to grieve and lament. Uh, it's important to consider if, if you do need childcare, it will be provided, but it's something we'll need to help coordinate with you. So if you're interested in childcare for that evening, please reach out to Jordan uh, Armatrout, and the information is provided there. Otherwise, uh, please uh, do see the other announcements which are in there. And uh, that, I will hand it over to Matt for our message this morning. Awesome. Take two. Good morning, Liberty Church Mainline. It's good to see you as we gather for worship. Uh, I am Matt. I'm the pastor here and want to extend a welcome to you. If you're visiting, it's great to have you joining us this morning. Uh, And as we continue our service, we are in the midst of a series on renewal. Uh, And today we're going to look at, we we have a passage that's historically, traditionally uh, would be an Ascension Day passage, but uh, because of the way that we're going through the series and we're looking today at the Holy Spirit, uh, we're we're a little bit early on the call for Ascension Day, so I uh, ask for your uh, patience with us as we look at this passage. But this is the inspired uh, word of God given to us for our good, so I invite you to follow along, listen to it as the very word of God speaking to you and to us today. In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me. For John baptized with water but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? And he replied, it is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth." And when he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray for understanding. Our Lord and God, we thank and praise you for the work that you've done in history, and we thank you that as this passage reminds us, Jesus is alive again from the dead. And thank you that he sits now on the throne of heaven, is at your right hand, and even prays for us and watches over us continually. 
Father, these are things that we need to remember, which is so easy to forget. And so I pray for every individual today that they would hear from you uh, by the work of your spirit in us through your word, the goodness and the care and the kindness that you have for us. Father, we ask that you do this by your power, applying to us the death, resurrection of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. We ask in his name, amen. In 2006, before the New Orleans Saints football season, first game of that season, which was the first game they played following Hurricane Katrina, Green Day and U2 performed a cover of the song, The Saints Are Coming, a song that, if you're like me, you love the rousing chorus there. But the particular version that they sang had opening lyrics that, that read like this. I cried to my daddy on the telephone, how long now? Until the clouds unroll and you come home, the line went. But the shadows still remain since your descent, your descent. Richard Jobson, the member of the Skids, who originally wrote that version of the song and at the time thinking of the death of his own father and those lyrics voice a sense of abandonment of a child bereaved of or perhaps neglected under especially when we come to a passage like this that talks about the departure of Jesus from our physical presence, it's common to wonder if God has abandoned us or if he's even there. And sometimes we feel like latchkey children. God's left a note on the table, there are leftovers in the fridge, and try to pass the afternoon without getting into too much trouble. But the scriptures both challenge and encourage us that God is far more actively involved in our lives, in particular through the gift and the presence of God the Holy Spirit who connects our lives and stories to the life and the story of Jesus. So this morning we're going to look at how the Holy Spirit binds together the proof of the resurrection, the purpose of the church, and the power of God. So proof, purpose, and power this morning. First, the proof of the resurrection. This is the assumption of everything that follows. The book of Acts begins like most sequels, and there's a recap of the most salient information to understand about what is about to unfold in the rest of the book. So we could use our narrator voice here and say, previously in the Gospel of Luke. Luke summarizes his first book as what Jesus began to do and to teach. And then verse 3 recalls the end of the gospel story and then fills in the gap between the gospels and Acts. After his suffering, his crucifixion, Jesus rose from the dead and presented himself alive to his disciples by many convincing proofs over the course of 40 days. It's quite striking that that is highlighted Often, you'll hear the opinion that the Bible was written just a, a more gullible, a more naive time, right? They didn't understand science, right? So when the Bible describes unusual and miraculous events like the resurrection of individual from the dead, we have to take that with a grain of salt. Because at best, these are like childhood fables, and we all know that animals don't talk, even though they do so in TV cartoons and Aesop's fables. But Luke actually says the very opposite, Jesus appeared to his followers over 40 days in order to offer proofs of his resurrection. 
the disciples had to be convinced continually for more than a month that Jesus was alive again. And so Jesus met with them, talked with them, touched them, and ate with them. The disciples were actually more like us than not. They weren't especially predisposed to believe in the resurrection. If anything, they were indisposed to believe in the resurrection. There was actually one set of Jews at the time, the Sadducees, who denied any continuing personal existence after death. That's not a new phenomenon, right? There was a school that believed that at the time that Jesus lived. There was another set, the Pharisees. They affirmed the resurrection, but they thought of it strictly in a very different paradigm. They believed all of humanity would be resurrected at the end of history, They never expected that one person would be resurrected in the middle of history. That didn't fit their story. Most non-Jews, Greeks and Romans, like Luke, who wrote the gospel, or Theophilus, who received the uh, gospel of Luke in the book of Acts, would have probably, from their original culture, been embarrassed by the idea of a bodily resurrection. Philosophical Greeks viewed the body as a prison and death was a kind of liberation that freed the good spirit from the prison of the fallen, faulty body. The idea of resurrection would actually have been intolerable, have been thought of as like a backwards step. It's actually the bodily resurrection of Jesus and ascension of Jesus that make Christianity the most body-positive material world positive religion in world history. The physical world doesn't need to be escaped. It needs to be resurrected. It needs to be renewed. The resurrection and ascension of Jesus are not creative PR innovations. They would have been a liability in the ancient world, except for the fact that that's what the apostles witnessed. The people that Luke interviewed to write this book. And that is what motivated them to go out and bear witness to the world about the Lord Jesus, uh, who they had seen alive again from the dead. So Jesus appeared to them for 40 days repeatedly and uh, confirmed his resurrection, but also to prepare them for the future, which is the purpose of the church that he gives them here in this passage. At the end of the 40 days, it's not entirely clear that the apostles have learned all that much. They still don't seem to grasp Jesus's purpose and their purpose that he's going to give them. In verse 6, they ask Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? John Calvin, 16th century French theologian, not often thought of as a great comedic talent, and yet says that there are almost as many errors in this sentence as there are words. First, at this time, Jesus answers, it's not for you to know times, because Jesus had said that again and again and again in the course of his ministry. If someone says, there's Jesus, Jesus has come back, or I know when Jesus is coming back, Jesus has already told us quite a while ago that you don't have to listen to anything else they say. It's an incredible time saver. Second, will you restore the kingdom to decks of a relatively oppressive ancient Roman Empire? And they were looking to God to turn the tables, to put Israel back on top. They were eager for the reestablishment of a political kingdom, a new Israelite empire like the days of David and Solomon. 
But Jesus actually says, you have, this is a failure of imagination because your vision is too small, not too big. He had something far greater in mind when he says in verse 8 that your mission is from Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth, which is really just what God had planned all along, quoting back from Isaiah, where Isaiah had prophesied of Jesus to come. It's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth, which is good news for us because at the time, this would be the ends of the earth compared to Jerusalem. In fact, verse eight gives a three-point outline of the rest of the book of Acts as the gospel goes from Jerusalem to Rome. And in that world at that time, Rome was the ends of the earth. It was as far away as you get socially, politically, culturally from Jerusalem and anticipated in a way the actual global worldwide geographic expansion of Christianity where all where Israel together with all nations would be brought together into the kingdom of God but perhaps most surprising the disciples ask in verse 6 will you and then Jesus answers in verse 8 you will doesn't that seem like a terrible idea They couldn't even ask the right question, and Jesus is putting them in charge of this project? This makes me think of Krispy Kreme donuts. So bear with me for just a second. Let me unfold it for you. Uh, I first encountered Krispy Kreme donuts about 20 years ago. We were living in West Philadelphia, and we would come out to a Target that was on Westchester Pike, and they built one of those factory stores where you could see them make the donuts, and they would roll out uh, on the um, conveyor belt. And all of a sudden, I had so many more reasons to go to Target. Don't we need something else for the bathroom? And, I mean, we'll be right there. I didn't even know that such donut delicacies existed. But actually, within a couple of years, the store closed, as well as many Krispy Kreme stores uh, around the country. What had happened? The story of Krispy Kreme is actually of uh, significant corporate mismanagement. There was, uh, I don't remember that there was any actual fraud, but there was just ineptitude. And people still loved the donuts, but the franchise owners couldn't make any profit. And so all the stores closed. And the only reason the company survived under new management was because the donuts were just so good, right? The poor management could not sink the company, so the company endured. Okay, so the church (laughs) is kind of like Krispy Kreme donuts. I should actually get like an endorsement deal, right? Should we we sign up for that? Um, Often, the management isn't very good. I'm a pastor. I am going to be the first to agree to that, right? I'm also an amateur church historian, and often if you read church history, it's like, what an embarrassment. How does this project keep moving forward? And yet, as a pastor, sometimes hearing the horror stories that some of you have told me, that others have shared with me about experiences in the church, as a, as a historian reading through history, all of the mistakes and errors, nonetheless, the church continues to grow and share the message of Jesus to the point where Christianity is the largest single human society today spread around the globe 
and hundreds of millions of other men, women, and children are doing what we are doing in a variety of churches, in a variety of denominations, in every corner of the earth. Often we're kind of an embarrassment, first to admit it, but the church keeps plugging along, not because of how good we are, but because of how good Jesus is. And if anything, our shortcomings just highlight his glory. Jesus, will you? And Jesus answers, you will. And you're going to make me look good in the process. Now, what will we do, right? Are we going to organize? Are we going to strategize, right? That's what kingdom builders would do. That's what movement generators would do, corporate entrepreneurs. But Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. Now, what exactly do witnesses do? Really, a witness just answers questions posed to them about their experience. It's actually the most natural thing in the world. You don't have to study up. As long as you're telling the truth, it's the easiest job in any courtroom. You're not the lawyer. You're not the judge. You're not the jury. You're not the plaintiff or the defendant. And we often get this exactly backwards, and we think how much more we need to know, how much more we have to master in order to be an effective or persuasive Christian evangelist or apologist. And so we keep our mouths shut because we're afraid we're going to get something wrong or we'll mess something up. But consistently, the New Testament says that followers of Jesus our, our witnesses. It doesn't say become a witness. It doesn't say learn to witness when you have a chance to tell about your experience of Jesus' goodness to you. Jesus did the hard part. In his own words, going back to the Gospel of Luke, Jesus summarized it as uh, that the scriptures wrote that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. That was their purpose. That is still our purpose. Jesus did the hard part. He left heaven. He became mortal, died on the cross, and endured righteous judgment against our evil and our sin, the mess that we've made of this creation. Our part's easy in comparison to bear witness when given the chance to what Jesus has done for you or for me. Now, that can still seem kind of intimidating, especially since it seems like Jesus leaves us to do this on our own, except that he doesn't. And that brings us to the power of God. The power of the ascended Jesus is worked out in the world through the person of the Holy Spirit. We think, wouldn't it be so much better if Jesus had just stuck around to do this himself? Wouldn't he be so much more convincing and attractive than us? But the New Testament actually says the very opposite. Jesus actually says the very opposite. The ascension of Jesus to heaven is the necessary prelude to the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost, which comes just after this in the book of Acts in chapter 2. But here you already see the Spirit's coming mentioned as, verse 4, the promise of the Father. Verse 5, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And verse 8, you will receive power from the Holy Spirit. 
I think we often think of the Holy Spirit as like God's consolation prize, right? Our spiritual boyfriend on the rebound after Jesus left. The Gospels, though, flag that that's a really small view of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is actually the agent of the incarnation of Jesus, the one through whom God the Son becomes a human being. He descends upon Jesus at the beginning of his ministry and then empowers the wonderful uh, teaching and uh, miraculous ministry of Jesus throughout his uh, later years. Jesus actually refers to the work of the Holy Spirit through his ministry as the finger of God at work in the world. To use our theological language, he's the third person of the Trinity, equal in power and glory to God the Father and God the Son. That is not a consolation prize. In the Gospel of John, Jesus himself says, it's to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, which is an interesting little glimpse into the Trinity. You sometimes get these glimpses of the relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit, and they are always so excited about one another and so positive of, about one another. Jesus turned the apostles' will you into you will, but that doesn't mean Jesus leaves us home alone. The Gospel of Luke, as we read here earlier in verse 1, is all about Jesus began to do and teach, which is the setup for the book of Acts when Jesus continues to do and to teach. It's the setup for the sweep of human history, the work of God through his church, and all that Jesus continues to do and teach among us and our brothers and sisters around the world. Back in 1935, Albert Einstein co-authored a paper highlighting what he believed was a problem in quantum mechanics. Erwin Schrodinger later named the phenomenon quantum entanglement. Entangled particles somehow remain linked even at great distances. And Einstein thought it was actually a shortcoming in quantum me mechanics that needed to be fixed. The equations needed to be improved. He, so he disparagingly called it spooky action at a distance, right? Great name, right? What a writer. But subsequent experiments confirmed that quantum entanglement actually happens. The New Testament tells us the Holy Spirit is the one who entangles our lives with Jesus so that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus are for us. So that, as Colossians says, our lives are actually hid with Christ in heavenly glory. And that's how the physically absent Jesus is still always present through his spirit. So that it's true what Jesus said, I am with you to the end of the age. And he is continuing to work through his people, through you and through me, until he returns. It might not be particularly reverent, but it works as an illustration to say that the Holy Spirit is the agent of, of Jesus's spooky action at a distance among us. Ultimately, it's the Spirit that unites our story with the story of Jesus so that he's not just somebody from the far distant past. He's not an inaccessible celebrity. He is the enthroned king of the universe who is also intimately concerned with the details of each and every one of our lives. 
The Bible actually says that God is a generous father who loves to give good gifts to his children. And the Holy Spirit is repeatedly referred to as the gift of the father. And there's also, so if you long for spiritual renewal, if you long perhaps even for the ability to believe the story of Jesus, ask for the gift of the Holy Spirit. God loves to give him. If you long for the renewal of your individual life, of your community, of your church community, ask God for the Holy Spirit. He loves to give the Spirit to those who ask. And the Holy Spirit is often referred to as uh, being outpoured. So this is not like a faucet that's leaking, right? This is like the fire hydrant that's been opened up in the city on a hot summer day, pouring cool, refreshing water all over children as they play. That's the gift of the Holy Spirit. So we pray, renew us in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord and God, we thank and praise you that you are the God who is always present. We thank you that your Holy Spirit is among us, the same Holy Spirit that hovered over and participated in the original creation, that hovered over the miraculous incarnation of Jesus and empowered his life and his ministry. You are present, powerful, acting, often in ways we do not see, and yet nonetheless here. Father, give us eyes and faith to see. Help us to rely on you. Help us to be bold in asking for more of the experience of your presence. And we thank you that you delight to pour your good gifts out on your sons and your daughters. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, thanks for listening. We hope that either through or in spite of the human messenger, you heard the gracious invitation of God to the abundant life of love and service found in the transforming person and work of Jesus. If you've been encouraged by this podcast, please take a moment to rate, review, or subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about our church, check us out at libertymainline.org.